Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahi Alhamdulillahi Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inahu wa nasta'firuhu Wa numinubihi Wa tanawakalu ala Wa na'udhubillahi min shiruhi anfusina Wa min sayati amalina Wa asharuan la ilaha illallahu Wahduhu la shirikalahu Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh Amma ba'd A'udhu billahi min shaitan al-rajim Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Assalamu alaikum Okay, now generally people are asleep at the end of my presentations, not at the beginning So I have to know that you're awake at the beginning, it makes me feel good So, again, I say Assalamu alaikum Jazakallah, alhamdulillah Brothers and sisters, first I'd like to thank the organizers for giving me this opportunity to come and share some ideas that have been accumulated for about the last perhaps 37 years about unity not only in the Charlotte, North Carolina community but unity throughout this country of the United States of America. And most of the speakers before me gave a disclaimer about their not being scholars and I will also add to that. I'm no scholar. As a matter of fact, I don't know really what I am. I'm just privileged to be allowed to serve the Ummah in whatever capacity that you allow me and the people in Winston-Salem allow me to serve. As a matter of fact, of these speakers, I'm the least of them all. And I'm not saying this in some kind of self-deprecating way. I mean this sincerely. So the best thing that I could do, if I were an intelligent man, I would just say, I say what they say, and go sit down, and you would have heard the best from the best who are in this room this evening. But I have been asked to share a few things with you, and I will share just a few ideas with you this evening. As our, my previous brothers have said, who have spoken before, have said that there are so many ayah from the Qur'an, that there are so many ahadith that we can quote, that talk about the unity of the Muslims. And so I'll say at this point, I say what my brothers have said. And I don't want to repeat what has already been said, so I'll just talk about two periods, episodes from the history of Islam that can give us an example about what true brotherhood in Islam, what does it look like? Because this concept, this term of Muslim unity, if we don't have an idea of what it looks like, it's an abstraction. It's just something that sounds good. So let me help myself and help you just for a moment. Get an idea, what does Muslim unity look like? And I've chosen one example to look at the most unique brotherhood in Islam or in any organization of human beings in the history of mankind. That is a very bold statement to make. How can you pretend 
to be able to scour the pages of history of the non-Muslim. Look at a period when the Muslims had established the Khalifa. That the Prophet Muhammad had been dead for almost a hundred years. Now the Islam was beginning to spread throughout the world. Look at a time when the Muslims were entering into a country where there were no other Muslims. That there was established religions. One of these religions persecuting the other Akubi Tabi uh, uh, religion. Look at a time when the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad was an Ummah that was a reflection of every color and nationality just like we have in this room tonight. Look at a time when those Muslims came together not just as Arabs, not just as people from the subcontinent, not just as Europeans, not just from North Africa or West Africa. Look at a time when Tariq ibn Ziyad in 711 of the common era went into went into the southern part of Spain and established a, a Khalifa helped to bring about the establishment of Islam in Europe look at this time look at what was going on with the Ummah look at how the those from the Arabian Peninsula now that Islam has spread into North Africa, into West Africa, that the Muslims are getting strong all over the earth. Look at, at this time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helped to bring these Muslims together to bring Islam into Europe. And for almost the next 1,000 years, to be more exact, 800 years, the Muslims were the light of the world. The Muslims ruled much of Al-Andalus, this Iberian Peninsula, this country of Spain for almost a thousand years. And we can talk about all the beauty, all of the science, all of the astronomy, all of the books. Look at all the what we produced when we came together in a true brotherhood based on necessity based on the necessity of the moment that we understood that my being an African-American means nothing based on the necessity of the moment. What do I need to do to lend my African-American self to this ummah to do what needs to be done? So, in brief, when we look at this history and just glancing over this history, we find that at a certain juncture, some old bad habits began to set into our ummah. And the bad habits began to cause us to start breaking up and fragmenting. And the bad habits start cause us to say, those Africans who are up there in Spain, those Arabs who are up there in Spain, what we have to do, we have to be dominant. We can't have this, this uh, quilt of leadership that we have. Let's go back to our old ways. We're comfortable with that. 
and read the history of El Andalus. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it, read the history. And you'll find that what we talk about, the glory of Spain over the centuries began to crumble. I had the opportunity in 2004 to visit two of the cities that were part of the crown jewel of the Muslims from the time of 711 when Tariq ibn Ziyad crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, turned around to his men and ordered them to burn the ships, and then said, the sea is at our back, the enemies of Allah are in front of us, now what are you going to do? Look back at that time. And we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this glorious period and it unraveled as the interworkings of the Muslims started to go back to tribalism and nationalism. And this beautiful ummah fragmented to the point that when I was in Spain in 2004 praying in the mosque what I still call, and you call the mosque at Cordoba. But really it's a cathedral. Because when the Muslims were expelled out of Spain, these beautiful structures were taken over. And this beautiful mosquito, this beautiful structure in Cordoba was now turned into a cathedral, but just a small portion was now an area that had the same mithrab and some of the columns and things there, and you knew that this was a part of the original mosque. So being overwhelmed by the history that I knew of the area, I said, let me make salah. Let me just offer two salah. And as I make sujood, someone comes and grabs me at the back of my neck and pulls me up off the ground. And coming from the background I come from and the little bit of Islam, I started to hit the dude. What's wrong with you? And he spoke to me in perfect English, telling me no. No salah. No dua. This is a cathedral. If I see you making dua, if you get on your knees again, you will be put out of here and you won't be allowed to come back. That's how far we have sunk and I submit there are many reasons but I submit that part of it was because of how our brothers and sisters dealt with the issue of who they were and what was important the necessity of the moment or my nationality my ethnicity brothers and sisters I only have a few moments left. So let me just take a quick survey. I love to do surveys, Imam Khalil. I love to do them. I, re I really love to do it. Let me do a quick survey. How many of you in this room, just quick show of hands, how many of you in this room plan to make this country, and Allahu Alam, Allah knows best, no, we don't know where we're going to be tomorrow. But right now, sitting here tonight, how many of you plan on making this country your home. Let me just see your, your hands. The overwhelming majority in the room. Let me tell you a quick story and I'll come to, to an end. Two more points. Quick story. 
a very dear brother of mine from India by the name of Aftab. You may know Aftab. He's a sociologist, beautiful brother, beautiful speaker. He told a story one time. I heard him speak. We were up in Canada, I think. And he told a story. He said that when he was growing up and his grandfather was in the house, had come from India and staying in the house that he was growing up in with his parents, that his grandfather came and kept a packed suitcase at the door. And for all of the years of his life, he saw this suitcase at the door and respecting his grandfather so much he didn't want to ask him, you know, granddad, what's up with the suitcase? Well, you, you, you plan on going somewhere. So he said he didn't ask. He said he was, he was a teenager before he asked his grandfather. And his grandfather said, I'm not going to be here long. So I'll keep my suitcase packed. So at the right moment, I don't even have to waste time. I'll grab my suitcase and I'll be out the door. Most of us, as we have raised our head, have no intention of leaving this nation. This is it. Regardless of where we've come from, this is it. This is home. And you treat home differently than you treat some place that you're just visiting. The Prophet Muhammad has made it clear that we should live in this world as if we're visitors. Don't be too heavy with all your possessions and all these things because we're just passing through. But I'm not talking about that kind of visitation. This is home. You and I intend to be here. So, in four minutes that I've been signaled, and I have to tell you, Ahmad, I have a trick. I've developed a trick. With the timekeeper, I'll start talking to this side of the room. Right? I won't even look over there anymore, but I know it's time for my grip, so I'll, I'll look in your direction so you can continue to signal to me the time. That you and I, let me jump a couple other points to a couple other points. That after September the 11th in 2001, it is my humble belief that the necessity of a moment for Muslims in the United States changed in within an hour. I work in public schools and I was directing this program in this middle school and I was walking through a classroom on that morning at about nine something and one of the sub my substitute teachers, I was going to check on him and I walked in there and I saw the planes going into the building. I thought the man was watching a movie. So I began to say, man, what's going on? Come on, man, you know, don't do this. And he told me what it was and I sat down and found out what was going on. Within one hour, the necessity of the moment for Muslims in this country changed. Let me give you one or two quick examples. Right in the area where I live in Winston-Salem, there were Muslims in the triad area of North Carolina within weeks, within months of September the 11th, 2001, picking up the telephone, calling Homeland Security on Muslim brothers and Muslim sisters that they had disagreements with. People were calling, you had an argument, a disagreement with the Imam. So let me call Homeland Security and tell them that Imam is a terrorist.
Come and pick him up. Take him away. This had never happened in my 37 years of practicing Islam in this country. So there's so many things that the necessity of the moment changed for Muslims. These young people growing up today as Muslims are growing up into a different land and environment in America than you and I who've been here for a number of years. That America that we knew is gone, is changed. And the necessity of the moment today is a different necessity. It demands, like the Prophet Muhammad like those righteous predecessors before us, to understand what time are we living in? Is it time for us to be divided amongst ourselves, to have power lust, to want to be the one to say, my masjid is doing this and yours is not? To say that I have more money, I have bigger buildings, that my people are smarter than your people or does the necessity of the moment if we're intelligent today demand that you and I figure it out. What can we do out of necessity? Not just a good idea. Don't train these young people to think that it's America of the 1970s, America of the 1980s. That's gone. It's dead and as they say on the street, it's dead and spanking. That's gone. It's history. Learn from the history. But don't teach these children some twisted, distorted fantasy about our environment that no longer exists. Prepare them to be that part of this ummah of the Prophet Muhammad that can understand the necessity of the moment that I can put down, that they can put down their selfish kinds of desires and interests. It doesn't mean erase it. Wait till they go on Hajj and you see on Hajj that the Bengali speakers are primarily sleeping beside the Bengali speakers. The Arabic speakers are primarily sleeping beside them. The English speakers are sleeping beside each other. They're interacting with one another. But it does not negate the fact that this is an ummah that is rooted in the necessity of the moment. We do what has to be done to advance the cause of Islam. Help teach our children this. Don't instill in our children ideas that you and I have harbored in our hearts for so long. So brothers and sisters, in closing, the necessity of the moment helps us to come up with something called operational unity. It means that if, and I'll use this as an example, as an example, one example, it means that if the masjid that I am a part of recognizes that this country has an elephant standing in the middle of the living room and doesn't want to recognize the elephant, that racial discrimination is a gigantic elephant that is standing in the, in the middle of the living room of America, the presidential candidate that many of us support, 
I submit that people love Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, who are not of the same race or ethnicity of him. Why? Because he makes us feel good by saying we're not going to discuss this nasty, pernicious, wicked thing called racism in America. We're not going to talk about it. We're going to get beyond that. So people say, okay. And so I submit that if in our messages, in our sinners, we recognize there's a need, there's a need to address the inequities of the death penalty. My son-in-law, and I'm not, I'm going to shut up. Give me one minute. My son-in-law was one vote on a jury from getting the death penalty in June of 1985 for a crime that he did not commit. One vote away. And then he spent the next 19 years of his life trying to prove that he was not the perpetrator of a very heinous, brutal murder. But he was one vote away from being executed because of the prosecutorial misconduct rooted in racism, because of the police misconduct rooted in racism, because of the racist judges sitting on the bench. His life is the story of so many people in this country. So if we can recognize that there are problems, if we establish a social justice committee in our masjids, don't just have it in one, bring everybody, every Muslim have a representative in it. Let's make our voices strong when we go forward in the community. Everybody doesn't have to do it, but go forward together. We will recognize the necessity of the moment. We will have an operational unity based on Islam, paying attention to our duties and responsibilities. Brothers and sisters, I close by praying that these young people in this room will help us, those of us with gray in our beards and on our heads, will help us to overcome some of this, my water is colder than your water attitude that the Muslims that we have so shamefully displayed for in front of our children and our grandchildren for decades. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us who've been pushing this agenda for so long to change our ways, not tomorrow, not for the next unity session, but tonight. Make a commitment to tonight that I'm going to change my ways, that I'm going to do something differently. And finally, I pray that if there's anything that I've said that's against the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu I ask Allah's forgiveness and your forgiveness and support that only everything that is, I've said that has any iota of truth comes from Allah and the mistakes are mine. As-salamu alaykum.